Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in two cases that have bearing on the future of social media content moderation, Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tamna. Both arise out of similar fact patterns and question whether social media platforms can be held liable for terrorist violence. The Gonzalez case, in particular, asks the court to potentially question the scope of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. This is the first time a case that involves Section 230 has reached the Supreme Court, but not because the law is uncontroversial. In the last Congress, more than 20 bills sought to amend it or repeal it. Depending on the outcome, a ruling could have enormous consequences on how the Internet works and how big technology companies assess liability on their platforms. In today's Jumbo episode, we're going to hear four segments. First, a primer on the basics of the case itself, then three separate perspectives on it. It's not my voice you'll hear asking the questions, but rather that of Ben Linnett. Ben is a tech policy researcher and writer focused on understanding the impact of social media and digital platforms on democracy. He has worked in various research and advocacy roles for the past decade, including serving as the editor-in-chief of Recoding.Tech and as policy director for the Open Technology Institute at the New America Foundation. Ben's first interview is with two student editors at the publication Just Security which we worked with this week to co-publish a review of amicus briefs filed with the court on the Gonzalez case. You can find the review at Tech Policy Press and at Just Security. Then we'll hear three successive interviews with Mary McCord, Executive Director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, or ICAP, and a visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, Anupam Chander, a professor of law and technology at Georgetown Law, and David Brody, Managing Attorney of the Digital Justice Initiative at the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. First up, here's Aaron Fisher and Justin Cole. Hey, I'm Aaron. I'm a 3L at NYU Law. Hi, I'm Justin, and I'm a 3L at Yale Law School. So you're both law students. Why don't you tell us a bit about your interest in the Gonzala case, some of the work you've done to sort of understand what the issues are, what some of the arguments are, and so on. Yeah, so for me, I initially became interested in social media and technology issues from kind of a social policy standpoint. Um, I'm especially concerned about the negative impacts that excessive social media use is having in our society across many areas, uh, from everything from teen mental health to the national security arena. And I first became specifically interested in the Gonzalez and Tomna cases through research that I've been doing. For a paper um, that I'm writing about a difficult issue, which is uh, websites uh, where users log on and encourage and give each other directions on how to commit suicide. And what the Supreme Court ultimately says in its decision in Gonzalez could have a major impact on uh, the government's ability to crack down on these websites. Yeah, I became interested in social media and tech issues kind of more generally through a human rights lens as an undergrad while doing research on the ways in which Facebook has incited violence against the Rohingya minority in Myanmar specifically. 
And as for Gonzalez, uh, I actually talked to several of my friends at the law school here who have done some work on the case through a clinic. Uh, and it became clear to me how impactful this case could be on both the human rights area and just more generally for social media at large. And I think it's particularly interesting to me just because there don't seem to be in this case as clearly delineated left-right divides uh, that we often see on hotly contested Supreme Court issues. Uh, and I found that really compelling as well. You know, I think what would be helpful for folks that are listening to the the podcast is to start with some some background on the case itself. You know, particularly why why was the lawsuit filed against Google in the first place? Sure. So in November 2015, uh, Noemi Gonzalez was murdered by ISIS terrorists as part of the large scale ISIS attack in Paris. Uh, she was one of 129 victims, and her estate and her family subsequently brought suit against Google alleging that through YouTube that it aided and abetted ISIS in violation of the Anti-Terrorism Act, so that's the underlying statute here, by affirmatively recommending these computer algorithms, through computer algorithms, videos designed to radicalize viewers. Uh, And the contention was that these YouTube recommendations actually were uniquely essential to the success of ISIS and that it therefore contributed to the attacks that uh, tragically left uh, Gonzalez dead. So the original complaint argued, as I said, that the YouTube recommendations were contributing to this. The district court dismissed this complaint based on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is a very short provision, but it says, I think it's worth reading, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. This provision has been interpreted really broadly. And for that reason, both the district court and the Ninth Circuit uh, determined that Google fell under the protection of Section 230. And that's how we got to the Supreme Court level here. You know, the lawyers for Gonzalez then appealed to the Supreme Court. What's the the specific question they asked the court to review? Okay, so the, the simple version of the question is whether Section 230C1 of the Communications Decency Act, which Justin just read, immunizes online platform operators when their websites make targeted recommendations of user-provided content. So in other words, what that means is whether the algorithms that common websites, popular websites like Twitter, YouTube, or even TikTok use to feed users content, whether that those algorithms are protected by Section 230. Yeah, specifically though, the question itself is framed in sort of this broader way where and I think we'll talk more about this in, in the context of particulars of the briefs, that it is about the recommendation. And that recommendation can happen either through an algorithm or presumably some other sort of mechanism. That's exactly right. So to give a few examples with the platforms that I mentioned a moment ago, um, when you are on TikTok, for example, and the app uh, kind of gets to know your interests and sends you a next video in your feed to watch, that is organized via one of the algorithms that we're talking about. Or for example, on YouTube, it would be when you're done watching a video, what the platform recommends as the next video for you to watch. And then Twitter would be, you know, when you're logging onto Twitter, let's say you follow 400 people, you're not seeing just in real time what each of those 400 people is posting at the moment that they post it. Um, you're going to be seeing more posts from people who have more followers, uh, maybe that have keywords that is something you've searched before. These are extremely important algorithms and recommendation 
um, strategies for these companies that kind of make the apps what they are. And I think without those algorithms, it would be an extremely different um, online environment. And I think not that many people realize um, what the far-reaching effects of this case may end up being. The implications of this case are quite significant, in particular to the extent that the court finds in favor of the petitioner or solicitor general, some of these other briefs, that would fundamentally narrow Sections 230's protections. Yeah, I think that the petitioner is really trying to hone in on a, a really textual analysis here. And they're really, I think, in their brief, kind of to a large extent, trying to avoid that larger discussion of how significantly that will change and really just looking at the text and saying what the text is trying to do here is prevent Google from being held liable as a publisher of third-party material. And the petitioners are saying, well, Google's not being held liable as a publisher. They're being held liable for their recommendations and recommendations are separate uh, from, from publications. And they're also looking at the fact that the recommendations are provided by Google itself. It's not as though the videos, uh, the videos were certainly made by other providers, but not by Google. And so that's kind of the main focus of the petitioner's brief. But as I guess you're kind of alluding to, the respondents and amici on their side are pointing to this larger discussion of what will this look like in the social media framework and in, in websites more broadly if they no longer are able to use recommendations, depending on how broad this decision ends up being, does that mean that Twitter has to list out, as Aaron was suggesting earlier, tweets just in order of appearance if they can't use these algorithms to try and target what they think that you are interested in? And I think that's the broader issue here. So let's dive in a little bit more in that in terms of the substance of you know what the petitioners are doing and some of these others, which is you know they're trying to sort of distinguish between the ISIS propaganda videos and the specific sort of actions or conduct of Google in this case. So sort of spell that out a little bit more in the context of, you know, what the Gonzalez lawyers have said and then, you know, maybe compare it to what the US government brief, you know, argued uh, in somewhat more nuanced fashion. Yeah, so they're definitely related arguments. And as I was saying a little bit earlier, the petitioners are really honing in on almost each word to a degree of section two thirty, which is fairly simple given how short it is. And they really go through and say, well, first, Google is not being held liable as a publisher of third-party material. It's about its recommendations. Second, that the recommendations are provided by Google. They're not provided by these other information content providers as Section 230 requires. And then finally, the defense doesn't apply because Google's not being a provider here with its recommendations. It's doing something kind of new and independent on its own. The Solicitor General does a related thing uh, in her brief as well. And it's really trying to distinguish between Section 230 protecting the dissemination of third-party speech. So Google not being held liable simply for having a defamatory or harmful speech on their site, but really honing in on the statute is not supposed to be immunizing other conduct that Google's engaging in. And that includes the design of the website and that, that includes the recommendations is the argument uh, that she's making there. I was going to expand a little bit on why this would potentially mean that Twitter wouldn't, you know, would have to put out content in the order that it's posted. And that would be basically because if it continued using the algorithms that it is, if the algorithm is not covered by Section 230, it would open up Twitter to a massive amount of liability and litigation. And it's likely that a platform such as Twitter would just be buried in lawsuits. Um, to such an extent that it would no longer be feasible for it to use that type of algorithm. 
And that's a significant part of the pushback from a number of the briefs is not just a disagreement over the interpretation of the Section 230 itself, but a recognition of the implications and the changes that dramatic changes that a, a decision in favor of the petitioner or the Solicitor General would have in terms of really reshaping how, how platforms operate. Absolutely. Um, we, uh, we read a number of briefs, but one in particular that was filed by seven or eight extremely well-known um, organizations that are either free speech oriented, First Amendment oriented, um, and some that are advocate for freedom of the press as well. Um, and basically, these uh, Michi are arguing that Twitter, for example, in such a situation would have to, um, or YouTube, actually, I think is a better example. YouTube in such a situation would have to over-police content in order to make sure that they're not um, allowing anything on their website that would open them up to liability. So what that would likely lead to, according to these briefs, is a crackdown on legitimate information on the internet. Um, so the prevention of information that's not, of certain information that's not objectionable, um, just because the companies would at that point be overcautious. And it seems that there's sort of a divide here to you in terms of, you know, on one hand, the Solicitor General and the petitioner think that the court can sort of draw this very narrow sort of rule in this case. And, you know, the briefs that are disagreeing with that feel that there's really no way to sort of draw a narrow rule here without a good sort of portion of Section 230's protections kind of being kind of eliminated. I think that's most likely correct. Um, I have read some arguments by commentators that say that it's possible that the court could narrow Section 230 in a more minor way, such as specifically how it interacts with the Anti-Terrorism Act. Uh, the companion case here, uh, Tomnet versus Twitter versus Tomnet, um, that case actually arises out of the same fact pattern as uh, the Gonzalez case. Um, it starts actually with the same lawsuit by um, Noemi Gonzalez's estate. However, that case is uh, much more about the Anti-Terrorism Act um, and asks the question of what the definition of substantial assistance is in the context of social media companies' actions uh, concerning content on their platforms that promotes terrorism. So it's theoretically possible that the court could find for Google in the Gonzalez case fully upholding Section 230, but also find that a website like YouTube knowingly provides substantial assistance under the Anti-Terrorism Act when it fails to take more aggressive action to remove pro-terrorism content from its platform. So there are other ways that the court could go in some sort of middle decision that wouldn't completely change the internet as we know it. But I think the more logical argument, and I think the briefs that at least I personally found more compelling um, on the Gonzalez side of things um, would really lead to most likely the court narrowing section 230 um, to not include the algorithms that we already discussed. And so th there was also this sort of kind of third thread that sort of was uh, in terms of narrowing or reinterpreting Section 230's protections around this idea of distributor liability, which I think if you're not a, a lawyer, uh, can be a little challenging to sort of follow. But I, I was wondering if, if either one of you could sort of explain that. Sure. So basically... There are a couple of different ways of, of, of looking at the argument. The main one, which uh, one of the main ones, which Justin alluded to earlier, is about this difference between distributor liability and publisher liability. And there's kind of a question here asking if under the common law, which is basically the tradition of legal decisions in the US and before that in, in England, whether publisher and distributor are two completely separate concepts 
where distributor is a subset of publisher. The statute of Section 230 um, refers to publishers and not to distributors. So that's a key question. Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican from Missouri, submitted one of these Amici briefs, amicus briefs, excuse me, to the court. And in that brief, he argues that the purpose of Section 230 covers publisher liability and not distributor liability, and that in these cases, uh, Google, by way of YouTube, is actually um, a distributor and not a publisher. Therefore, it would not be covered. Um, these algorithms would not be covered by Section 230. There's also a brief uh, filed by a number of law professors, I believe, that directly um, addresses this argument by Senator Hawley and includes basically uh, just a disagreement based on the legislative history of Section 230 and talking about the common law, how in their opinion, distributor liability is a subset of publisher liability and therefore it is covered by Section 230. One is strict liability, one is the secondary liability, but there is sort of this specific difference between how a newspaper, for example, might be liable and how what a distributor, how a distributor could be liable, that distributor might be a, I think the, the example that was often used was a bookstore or a library. Can you just sort of like walk through like what those differences are? So one difference is uh, whether or not the platform um, has specific knowledge of the content that is in violation of, um, of the law. So for instance, if there's content that's posted on YouTube, that's an ISIS recruitment video, and that content is illegal under, for example, the Anti-Terrorism Act. The question, the operative question then becomes whether the platform has knowledge that that content is on its website. The idea that Senator Hawley talks about, and actually Senator Ted Cruz has a, another brief that's uh, co-written with, I believe, 14 members of Congress, and they make the argument that because they believe publisher and distributor liability are separate, in this case, Google is a distributor because they had specific knowledge that there were ISIS videos on their platform. This idea leads to kind of a practical problem, which is that given just the millions of videos and tweets and everything that goes onto these platforms on the internet, it's basically impossible for these platforms to keep track of every single thing that's posted on their platform. And that's another reason why if the Supreme Court does narrow Section 230, it would likely lead to just a whole-scale change of what we see on these websites uh, because it would simply not be possible for these platforms to go through one by one and get rid of content that violates any U.S. law or state law. So that's kind of one of the of the arguments is this distributor versus publisher liability question. But there, you know, I, I think there's also, you know, you, you talked about the Tomina case. The context of this case is within sort of the JASTA framework for civil liability. Uh, I think there was another argument put forward by a brief uh, on behalf of uh, formal national security experts and others that have sort of worked in terrorism and national security around that JASTA, essentially JASTA is the Terrorism Act that provides sort of this, the, the ability to sort of sue uh, somebody who aids and abets a, a terrorist organization. So it was passed sort of after 230 and there's some intentionality there for Congress to sort of provide this as a mechanism to uh, hold different institutions and entities accountable? Yeah, there is. And that, that argument specifically made in the brief that I think we've brought up a few times already, which is by these former national security officials. The brief is explicitly in support of neither party, uh, but there is this argument that there's simply a way to reconcile uh, these two statutes with each other, uh, and that the idea is this JASTA statute is passed more than 20 years later, and that it does, even though not explicitly, impliedly repeal 
Section 230 to the extent that it would not allow for aiding and abetting liability here. I mean, I think one response that one would potentially have to that is the question of Congress has uh, amended Section 230 at various points. It's obviously able to do so at any point. And I think that's another large theme that's brought up by the respondents and their various supporting amici, which is, is this really the role of the court to get into and grapple with this issue of Section 230, given its huge implications on the internet and the economy and all, all these other types of issues? So I think that's one thing to think about here as well. What are the options for the court? I mean, in some, some respects, it doesn't necessarily have to make a decision here, right? There are a number of options that the court can pursue, uh, some of which we've already touched on a little bit. The first is to dismiss the case as having been improvidently granted. This is highly unlikely to happen, but it would not be unprecedented. Basically, it would be a dismissal of the case at some point before a decision would have been released uh, because the court would have felt that it should not have granted cert in the case after all. Given that these seem like real issues, I think this is extremely unlikely. Um, the second option would be to simply uphold the Ninth Circuit's decision in Gonzalez, um, and which would mean just reaffirming that court's decision to dismiss the lawsuit uh, because the claim is barred by Section 230. That's the, the petitioner's claim. Um, the next option would be to narrow Section 230, which we already um, discussed a bit. So as I said, the most likely way to do that would be to agree with the plaintiffs that algorithms used by companies like Google via YouTube to recommend or push certain content to users are not covered by Section 230. But as I mentioned, there are also kind of other more narrow ways that the Supreme Court might be able to, to do this. Yeah, I would say those are the main paths that the court could take. And you mentioned the Tamina case, but maybe sort of just discuss a bit more how those two sort of fit together, you know, if a decision in one happens, how the court avoids having to make a decision in this particular case. Sure. So as it currently stands, um, the Ninth Circuit actually came down kind of on, on separate sides in the two cases. So if the Supreme Court were to affirm uh, in both cases, um, that would be kind of uh, with an effect of what I was talking about a little bit earlier of uh, specifically talking. The, the Tomna case deals specifically with the Anti-Terrorism Act and that definition of substantial assistance. So that could essentially cause uh, a company like uh, Google or, or Twitter um, to have to take more aggressive action to remove pro-terrorism content from their platform without explicitly saying that Section 230 is uh, does not cover these algorithms. We've had uh, dozens of briefs filed. What's what's next in the, in the process? Well, the oral arguments for both of the cases are this upcoming week, uh, and I think we'll get a better sense then of where everyone is coming down. As I mentioned earlier, in my interest in this case, I think it's uh, something that isn't necessarily strictly left-right ideological. I mean, you had uh, Senator Josh Hawley, as we mentioned earlier, filing in support of Gonzalez, but then you had uh, former Senator uh, Rick Santorum filing a brief in support of Google. And so it's it's not something necessarily that is easy to predict, I think, in that way, as, as some cases tend to be. Also, it will really depend, I think, a little bit on how the court views its own institutional role and competence here and whether they feel as though they're able to make a decision here that that should not be left to Congress instead. When can we expect a decision? You know, the Supreme Court, it doesn't say exactly what day it's going to release a decision in a specific case. Um, however, uh, we can expect a decision sometime in the late spring or early summer of this year. So stay tuned. Justin Naren, thanks so much for your time and expertise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast. Subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. If you'd like to read Aaron and Justin's review of Amicus Briefs, visit Tech Policy Press. There, you'll also find a piece by Ben Lennett on the importance of the case, as well as a variety of views on it from individuals representing different groups, including many that filed briefs with the court. The next three segments of the podcast are short interviews with three experts that bring different perspectives on the Gonzalez case. Georgetown University Law Center's Mary McCord, Georgetown Law's Anupam Chander, and the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights Under the Laws, David Brody. My name is Marion McCord. I'm the Executive Director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, or ICAP, at Georgetown Law. I'm also a visiting professor of law, but I spent most of my career at the Department of Justice as a federal prosecutor and more recently in the National Security Division, including as the Acting Assistant Attorney General for National Security. Thank you. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. Your brief you know, was filed on behalf of a group of former national security officials. You talked a bit about your sort of background in national security and terrorism and being a, a prosecutor. Could you just sort of give a bit more about you know, that particular experience and how that relates to the Gonzalez case? Sure. You know, I um, went over from the U.S. Attorney's Office as a federal prosecutor to the National Security Division in May of 2014, one month before ISIS declared a caliphate. Uh, that summer was the summer of just brutal you know, hostage takings, kidnappings, beheadings, uh, real terror as ISIS took actual territory in Syria and used the internet and social media to propagandize, to recruit, to connect people, to grow its network, to raise money. And working with other counterterrorism officials in the government at the time, it was a threat that was really different than what we had seen, for example, um, with al-Qaeda. Uh, the technology had just changed so much. ISIS brought a whole new level of threat to, you know, to what already is a dangerous situation. We've got a foreign terrorist organization that is taking over physical territory, claiming itself to be a sovereignty and recruiting people to come and engage in terrorist acts. Being able to organize themselves and recruit over social media sped up dramatically the the ascendancy of ISIS and its ability to reach so many people. And that made the work of those of us in counterterrorism that much more difficult. Every case, and I saw every single case from 2014 till I left in 2017, every case the Department of Justice brought, every criminal terrorism case involved some type of radicalization over social media. I saw every complaint. I saw every indictment. I saw every sentencing memo. It was an integral part of ISIS's success in those years. So, and I knew personally that algorithmic targeted recommendations and amplification of terrorist content, you know, significantly and exponentially expanded the scope, the breadth of people that who they were able to engage with. So that's really why when I saw this case, uh, without really taking an opinion on whether I think the plaintiffs here will be able to ultimately prove a, you know, a violation of the Anti-Terrorism Act, which is essentially bringing a tort claim, I, 
the idea of barring them at the courthouse door because of an expansive and, in my opinion, unwarranted and inconsistent with the language of 230, reading of 230, that expansive reading was wrong. And that's what motivated us at ICAP, uh, myself and my colleague, Rupa Bhattacharya, who was most recently the special master for the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund, has also had a long career at the Department of Justice, felt very strongly that um, there was a message here to be conveyed to the Supreme Court that it needed to take into consideration uh, as it ruled on this case. The question, and, and the question then, you know, with before the Supreme Court is is particularly focused on this idea of targeted recommendations. But I wonder if you can speak to the sort of original complaint or the original lawsuit that was filed against Google. You know, the terrorism laws and the liability that sort of in, was involved in, is involved in those specific laws, and and also just a bit about like the purpose and history of that conversation, and to the extent then that that kind of conflicts then with this existing Section 230 protections? So many people are familiar with our criminal terrorism laws. Uh, material support to a foreign terrorist organization is the most commonly charged terrorism offense in the U.S., and that applies when any person or entity or company knowingly provides material support or resources to a designated foreign terrorist or organization. That could be money, that could be equipment, that could be yourself as a fighter or uh, as as some other employee or aid to a foreign terrorist organization. But there are many, many people who have been injured uh, and harmed or had family members killed by terrorist acts. And until JASTA, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, until that act was passed, the only civil liability that those who had been injured by terrorist act could bring is if they were able to basically sue directly the person who committed that terrorist act or the entity that committed that terrorist act. What JASTA did was expand the ability for injured persons to be able to seek civil liability by creating secondary liability. And what that means, it's a legal terminology, is creating liability for those who aid and abet by knowingly, substantially assisting a foreign terrorist organization or person who is engaging in terrorist acts. So the way the statute works, the terrorist act has to be directed or authorized by a foreign terrorist organization. But then the liability kicks in to not just hold that FTO, that foreign terrorist organization liable, but hold anyone who assisted that foreign terrorist organization in committing acts of terrorism. Now, there is I'm going to put aside some of the legal issues that are in the companion case in, of Tomna v. Twitter, or really Twitter v. Tomna, uh, which goes right to the heart of how do we interpret that Anti-Terrorism Act provision that I'm talking about uh, with the secondary liability. But for purposes of Section 230, what this provision in JASTA did, and what Congress was very clear in its language that it was intending to do, is provide civil litigants with the broadest possible basis consistent with the Constitution of the United States to seek relief against persons who have provided material support directly or indirectly to foreign organizations or persons that engage in terrorist activities against the United States. That's what Congress said when it enacted JASTA. And so to interpret Section 230 to block those very persons who have been harmed by terrorist acts, to block them at the courthouse door, not even let them bring their case 
which is what this expansive reading of 230 would do, is fundamentally inconsistent with Congress's intent to expansively allow for broad civil liability. And so given that JASTA is a more recent statute and conveys Congress's intent, we think that's a couple of things. One, a a, a good reason not to interpret Section 230 the way that the social media companies would have it interpreted to apply even to targeted algorithmic recommendations, which is well beyond the language of Section 230. But it's also separately the basis for a separate legal argument that JASTA actually impliedly repealed any application of Section 230C1, at least, to ATA, Anti-Terrorism Act, claims involving targeted algorithmic recommendations of terrorist conduct. A big sort of main component of your argument is that there's no guarantee that Facebook or Google would be liable, particularly under the statute. But the, the issue with Section 230 is it prevents litigants from even having that conversation within the court system, that it's sort of automatically shut down by the interpretation of Section 230. Right. It prevents them from, the, from having their day in court. And, you know, one of the sort of you know, key components of our of our justice system in the U.S. is that people who are injured, uh, who have a cause of action, meaning the you know are but by statutory right have a have the ability to come into court and seek compensation for that injury, that they will have their day in court. They may win, they may lose. Their evidence may be insufficient to prove uh, what they need to prove, but they get a chance to fight the fight. And the interpretation of 230, the expansive 230C1 interpretation, doesn't even give them that day in court. It just cuts them off at the knees. You're not a 230 scholar, but you did sort of make some arguments concerning sort of 230 scope and its scale. I I wonder if you could just kind of walk through some of your main points on sort of the interpretation of 230 itself. Sure. I mean, first, our brief makes frankly, a policy argument just to make sure that the Supreme Court is very well aware of the impact of targeted recommendations through these algorithms purposefully created by social media companies for their own business interests to make money. Uh, wanted to make sure the Supreme Court is aware of that process and, and its real significant impact on terrorism uh, and on foreign terrorist organizations and their ability to expand, monetize, recruit, and commit terrorist acts. And, you know, we include examples of prominent terrorist acts where we establish and show that part of the proof that the government had accumulated with respect to those terrorist acts showed radicalization through social media. Beyond that sort of policy argument, our substantive arguments are that, and these are very much like the petitioner's argument or the government's argument is that an algorithm that the social media company creates in order to make recommendations of other content for users to view should they so choose, because in this case, we're talking about Google's YouTube. So we're talking about videos being recommended through their algorithms. That targeted recommendation is not third-party content. 230C1 bars litigation against an internet service provider, and let's just accept for present purposes that that that's what Google is here, it bars liability for just simply posting third-party created content. But it, it does not bar liability for your own, for the social media's own created content. So the argument is really pretty simple, that 
you know, these algorithms, they're created by the companies. In fact, they're created through a lot of research so that they can apply directly. They gather information about people's interests, what other videos they've viewed, what they seem to like. They, that goes into their algorithm that delivers up more of that content to those to those customers, to those viewers. And in fact, they also know from their research that sort of the more controversial the content is, the more likely it is to pull users in, pulls them into these feedback loops uh, where they just get more and more and more of it and go down a rabbit hole. But all of that provides more ability for advertising and revenue, et cetera. And that is all created by the company. That's not created by ISIS or any other terrorist organization. They're creating this loop effect. So first, it's just like like a, a textual statutory interpretation argument that it should not be interpreted to apply to conduct that the social media company engages in on its own. We also point out that the very same year, the very same Congress that passed Section 230, just two months later, passed some pretty extensive revisions to the terrorism uh, chapter of the U.S. Code and dramatically increased the types of anti-terrorism tools that were available to the government. So it was clearly thinking about tools to be used against terrorists, the same Congress that created Section 230. And it's implausible to think that those who created Section 230, again, before social media existed, when only a fraction of House and Senate members even had internet service, there's no way that they could have been thinking at that time when they had terrorism front of mind that this immunity that they were creating could ultimately be applied to social media companies they couldn't have even conceived of promoting, targeting, recommending terrorist content. I think your argument makes a lot of sense in terms of just kind of understanding the context and trying to sort of parse, you know, where the the company's actions are and what's related to the content itself. But there is, you know, a considerable amount of pushback within the context of of the of the Gonzalez case, you know, briefs that argue much differently that they interpret the text much differently that than your brief does. In particular, I think there's this sense among the many of the reefs that sort of filed on behalf of Google that if you sort of carve out this exception for for algorithmic recommendations or recommendations more generally, that you really have nothing left of 230 protections whatsoever for for social media. And I'm just wondering if you sort of have any any response to that. So again, there. Are- there are people who, you know, spend full time working in tech policy and who actually understand much better than I do how algorithms work. My son's a software engineer, but I am not. I'm very much not. Um, and they would be better equipped to answer that. But what I can say is this is I don't see this as a, you know, a sky is falling type of moment. So, for example, search engines, I've heard people say, well, search engines wouldn't be permitted, but there's no suggestion I don't see in the reading of of Section 230C1 to not cover targeted algorithmic recommendations. That's very different than user-generated searches using search engines, right? These targeted recommendations are not based on a user saying, hey, I would like to see more ISIS videos. These are things that a user is not inputting anything into at all other than the user apparently watching extremist videos that then end up delivering them more extremist videos. So I think, you know, there's, you know, that's just one example of distinctions and differences between what this case is about. These, again, developed by the companies for their own business purposes, targeted 
algorithmic re recommendations is very different than sort of normal search engine use. I would also say that, you know, if the companies have got the technological ability to create these types of algorithms, again, drawing from user data to to target them very specifically by user, then, you know, they certainly must have the technological capability to do their argue, uh, their algorithms in a different way. They just haven't had the market incentive or the litigation risk incentive to do that. Every other manufacturer of a product or provider of a service who puts their product or service into the marketplace has to account for how those products or services might malfunction or be used by bad actors. And they have to account for that because they know they might be civilly liable if they don't. And so at every other, you know, product or manufacturer or producer of products or services, you know, takes precautions from the beginning to mitigate the risk of those that their product or service could create harm for others. Social media didn't have to grow up with that. They, they you know, started out their platforms and, you know, went full bore without adequately taking into consideration the harms that could be accomplished over those platforms. Belatedly, they're, of course, doing more. They are creating different types of algorithms. Uh, Facebook says this on its, on its own website. You know, we're using AI to take down extremist content. So I don't think they've denied that they've got the wherewithal to do it. It might not be perfect yet. There might be more work to do. But I just see this as a way of injecting normal marketplace concepts into what has otherwise been allowed to grow without ever having to take into consideration what everyone else who puts a product or service into the marketplace has to take into consideration. And again, they still have a lot that they would be immune from because the mere, po you know, the mere posting of content and content moderation and taking down things would still be protected under C1 and under C2. Mary, thanks so much for your time and expertise. Thank you for having me. Anupam Chander, I'm a professor of law at Georgetown University. Well, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today uh, to discuss the Gonzalez case. I think it would be sort of helpful to kind of understand what is your interest in the Gonzalez case. You were part of a brief that included a number of other internet law scholars, but do you have any sort of particular sort of interest in, in this case generally? So I became concerned that the simple process of recommendation or automated recommendations in particular uh, were at risk. And they are so central to what companies and you know large and small do online. And I wanted to make sure that the Supreme Court had good uh, advice on this issue, because with Justice Thomas's activism on this question, I think there's uh, a real concern that the court might radically uh, rewrite internet law in a way I think that would be harmful to most of us who use uh, the internet on, on a daily basis. And so the, the brief that you joined as a response to the brief of the petitioners, to the Solicitor General's brief, uh, to some other briefs that had argued in favor of narrowing Section 230 in, in the context of the Gonzalez case, could you sort of kind of walk us through some of the critiques 
that you have of the petitioner's arguments, of the Solicitor General's arguments around how they think about recommendations in the context of Section 230? Sure. The petitioners have a difficult argument to make because there is an appealing aspect to the claim that companies should be liable for what they do and not for what other people say. The Solicitor General and the petitioners would like the Supreme Court to hold that Google is to be liable for what it does, e.g. recommending videos, but not be liable for the videos themselves. This turns out to be a difficult argument to maintain because one of the key features of the modern internet, a feature that makes the internet really useful, is search engines. Search engines do nothing but recommend content to you. They say, this is of the hundreds of millions of items uh, available on the web, these are the items we recommend to you that we believe will be of interest to you. We're not sure about it, but we think are responsive to your interests. And so the Solicitor General and the petitioners have to distinguish search engines from a kind of standing recommendation system that exists in news feeds, that, which also says of the thousands or millions of pieces of information that we could show to you, these are the ones we think are responsive to your interests. So the argument then comes to something like, well, the immunity is available if the person asked for that information at that moment, but it's not available otherwise. And that distinction is nowhere in the text. So I think it's going to be a hard argument to ultimately persuade the court uh, that recommendation itself can lead to liabilities in this case. And is it part of sort of the challenge of this is that it's hard to disentangle the recommendation from the content itself, particularly in this case, because presumably if this was involved different content, Google wouldn't wouldn't be li- wouldn't be you wouldn't have much of a claim under JASTA if this was some other content and not ISIS propaganda. It's hard for the plaintiffs to distinguish the underlying content of the videos from their claims because if YouTube was recommending cat videos, they would not be held liable for promoting terrorism. And so the underlying content is critical, is essential to the, to the claims uh, in this case. And that appears to be sort of des- by design within Section 230, whether or not Congress understood that they were creating such a broad sort of level of protection maybe is a bit more of an open question, but at least in terms of your reading and I think many other sort of interpretations of Section 230, that is the, the distinction. Section 230 makes a simple determination of, of who is liable. It says the speaker of the content is liable, but that the publisher, here the online publisher of that content, is not liable. 
and so it really does create a separate regime for online content. And the reason it does so is because it recognizes that this isn't a heavily curated podcast or a heavily curated newscast or a newspaper. It's rather a tumult of millions of people speaking online. And that recognition is there even in 1996. You already have bulletin boards, which are full of lots of material, some of it very harmful. And so recognizing that if you make the platform itself liable for that content, it will lead to the platform to take measures that will suppress more speech than we think is appropriate. And so what about this argument that, you know, a reasonable number of the briefs uh, in favor are sort of filed within sort of the the window of the petitioner discussing this sort of distinction between publisher liability and distributor liability and the idea that Section 230 still sort of maintained this distinction between publisher and distributor liability and, you know, sort of the difference between those two and the implications. Yeah. On the internet, the publisher is also the distributor. That's just the way it is, but the distributor is also the publisher. So if you are saying that 230 says no publisher liability, but we're going to hold you liable as a distributor, I'm not sure what 230 does. That's what online uh, services do. They distribute that content to you. Their servers distribute content. That is by the very nature of what it means to publish. Now, in the real world too, publishers often distribute. Newspaper publishers literally bring your the paper to your door. The effort to say that 230 did not include distributor liability, I think, faces a difficult reality that it's hard to imagine what 230 needs. Who gets 230 protections at all if they aren't liable for distribution? Because that's what a website does. It distributes that content. Even if it's the, the most passive, in historical terms, website possible, it still sends images of text or video or, and noise to your ears via the internet, it distributes them to you. It's not clear to me what is left of 230 immunity if there is no immunity for the active distribution. Secondly, the common law also made it clear that distributors were liable under the, the common law for secondarily publishing that material. So distributors before they were to be held liable, would be held liable as kind of constructive publishers. So that was the common law. Remember, publishers are more liable than distributors under the traditional common law. Okay, But in order to get to liability for distributors, you have to then ascribe publishing activity to them. That's what the common law did, and that's what our brief shows. The common law also recognized distributors. Before they could be held liable, they would be treated as publishers. 
But the standard itself, in terms of the liability, strict versus sort of this more secondary liability, was different. I mean, the argument in favor of this is that the standard is somewhat less because there's a requirement of knowledge that's sort of you know inherent to sort of the the understanding. And in the case of this, you know, the argument, particularly in the Gonzalez case, is that Google had knowledge that this content was, you know, that they were sort of amplifying terrorist propaganda, yet they took insufficient steps to to mitigate that or to remove that from their from their algorithms. So the claim isn't that they had knowledge of any particular piece of content, by the way. Mm-hmm. It is that they had knowledge generally that there were um, there was harmful material that might promote terrorism on its site. So the knowledge-based claim would actually cover every manner of ill in society because Google knows basically every manner of ill in society is currently being propagated on its services. So if, if you simply say there's a, a kind of abstract knowledge of wrongdoing, you know, including fraud, uh, including you know, plans for you know, violence, et cetera, all of that exists on Google services. That unfortunately is going to be the case for any service that carries uh, a large volume of traffic from human beings. But let me go back. So the question here that you posed is that there are different standards of liability for distributors and publishers. And so maybe this simply says this was just trying to get rid of publisher liability, but leaving distributor liability intact. And let me explain again why I think that fails. First, publisher liability was the stricter liability. Um, It was that you didn't even need knowledge to have liability. And the stricter liability was clearly, on the text of it, uh, removed. Now, if we say, oh, but now it's liable as a distributor, I find it hard to imagine what companies are not ultimately acting as distributors of material. That's the core function of interactive computer services. They distribute material to you. And now, if that's the the claim, then the amount of uh, material that they might have knowledge about in some sense is vast. Their knowledge of wrongdoing, gambling in Casablanca is significant. And so then it would essentially make them liable for all of the wrongs of of society, uh, which they have knowledge are being propagated on these services. Finally, the common law of distributor liability also originally, this is pre-1996, clearly said that distributors were held liable when they acted as publishers. So they were treated as secondary publishers before they were held liable. So if you're saying you cannot be treated as a publisher, treating a distributor as a publisher was a condition to hold the distributor liable. Congress knew how to impose knowledge-based liability in 1996. Communications Decency Act elsewhere imposes knowledge-based liability. So Congress knew exactly how to do it. 
1998, it does impose knowledge-based liability in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. But when it does so in the DMCA and has a notice and takedown system, that notice and takedown system is very carefully written. It is a very complicated system of notice and takedown. Why? Because a notice and takedown scheme, if you allow it, anyone to say notice, to provide you notice and thereby create possible knowledge, means that there will be a huge suppression of speech left and right, because it's very easy to send a notice. So Harvey Weinstein says, hey, this is uh, defamatory. Now you know, you better take it down. So anyone can make these kinds of claims and provide notice. The DMCA says, you got to do that under penalty of perjury. Okay. You make, you say you have copyright. Well, you know, it's under penalty of perjury. You know, that notice is, is it better be serious. And it has certain rules about what the notice must provide. And there's a lot of litigation on what notices must look like under the DMCA. This idea that they accidentally did that in 230 without stating it, even though elsewhere in the CDA and elsewhere in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, of which the CDA is a part, they clearly spelled out narrow areas where knowledge was conditioned for liability. And in, two years later, they spelled out a very elaborate regime for doing so in the copyright context. I think we should be cautious to, to interpret Congress's action as being um, this huge accidental creation of a distributor liability scheme in a knowledge-based notice and takedown scheme for you know, all content on all, all wrongs that might arise online. So part of your contention here is that if the court were to find and sort of reinterpret uh, Section 230 as expecting distributor liability, that's much different than the way the Congress crafted the DMCA with these sort of very specific sort of standards for the notice and cautious sort of writing of that statute to sort of not create sort of this situation where providers would be liable you know, across the board and all, and all these sort of circumstances. So here, a newspaper story that you have terrorist content on your site now suddenly makes you liable for terrorism everywhere. That's the, that's the theory of the case. So my worry as a civil libertarian, I'm, I'm interested in making sure that people have the ability to speak and also to complain about authorities. I want people to be able to say, hey, the United States, we're doing something bad somewhere. And I want people to be able to say that and not then have it taken down because it might encourage terrorism uh, in, some, in some way. I want them to be able to say that in Arabic. I want to make sure that we have the right to speak and especially speak against orthodoxy to question what others say. This is the history of civil rights speech in the United States. Folks who have argued for civil rights have long recognized that allowing, and this is New York Times itself, and allowing tort claims in these contexts will often lead to suppression of important protests about what is happening in society. And I want people to be able to protest freely online. It does mean 
there will be speech online, which I abhor. But it also means that that speech that I think is important protests against orthodoxy is permissible online. That's sort of an, an interesting point that you discuss or that the brief that you were a part of discusses is that Section 230 is not just doesn't provide just protection for the platforms, but also users. So in the case where even in a case like this, where if a user retweets or amplifies the, you know, an ISIS video, they are also presumably in your argument, not liable or they're not liable because they're protected by Section 230 as well, because that's what the, the statute says. Yeah. The statute's section C1 literally says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information provider. No provider or user. Most people are not quite aware of that it does protect the users as well. And even in cases of defamation, for example, if you were to retweet or like or share a tweet or something that included a, a defamatory statement, you're protected by Section 230. Exactly. So it's hard to imagine what you're left with of user of the user protections in 230 if the process of recommendation is not covered by Section 230. Users don't host other people's content. Users sometimes amplify it. This was true in 1996. It's true today. The plaintiffs and the government has a hard, an argument that is essentially runs in tension with the text of the statute. And I understand fully the desire to make internet platforms liable for bad speech online. But the history of free expression in the United States for the, over the last you know, 60 years has shown that tort liability against speech platforms will erode the freedom that we have uh, to protest. And this is why there are a huge number of briefs making the civil rights argument on Google's side. If the court decides in favor of Google in the case, I mean, are you concerned at all that it could do something to take sort of sections 230's protections too far, for example? If the court stands with Google, it reaffirms the last quarter century of the interpretation of section 230 by the lower courts. So it is, it leaves the law as it stands. The plaintiffs in this case seek to have the court chart a new direction in interpretation, one that I think is inconsistent with the text of the statute. And that is why the brief I authored, along with other people, makes the argument that uh, there's a straightforward textualist argument that stands with Google in this case. I don't think there's a risk that it expands Section 230 further. Section 230 is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, There are a number of cases where if you make a claim against the companies for other actions or for their own actions, 
like, for example, developing the content as in roommates.com or for other things as in a case called HomeAway in the Ninth Circuit, there are other avenues to, to challenge these companies' practices. But I think that those issues aren't raised in this case of revisiting roommates or HomeAway, for example. Well, Professor Chander, really appreciate your time and expertise uh, to discuss this case. Thank you so much again. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate it. I'm David Brody. I'm the managing attorney of the Digital Justice Initiative at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Underwall. Lawyers Committee is a national nonprofit racial justice organization. And you just sort of tell me a little bit, what is Lawyers Committee's interest in the Gonzalez case? The Gonzalez case has the potential to dictate whether or not and to what extent we can hold online platforms liable for illegal things that happen online. Uh, and, and we care a great deal about that in two directions. The first is it will affect the ability to enforce civil rights laws when online platforms violate them. Uh, and the second is because Section 230 is really important for preventing censorship of people of color online. Your interest is both in terms of being able to bring sort of cases to courts, particularly around sort of civil rights violations that occur, maybe it's from an algorithm or sort of a, of a platform, but also this sort of inherent and really important protection that Section 230 provides, which in terms of really enabling platforms to publish sort of a diversity of viewpoints on their platforms. Yeah, that's right. And so we really think it's important for the Supreme Court to take a balanced approach here. If immunity for platforms is too broad and sweeping, then it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to hold them liable for discriminatory algorithms and other discrimination and harms that the platforms themselves are responsible for. But on the other hand, if the Supreme Court guts Section 230, then the response of many platforms might be uh, to just broadly censor user-generated content because it's, it's generally a lot more cost-effective to do heavy-handed censorship than it is to do like really detailed content moderation. And what we've seen from AI content moderation so far over years is that it, it already disproportionately silences people of color, LGBTQ people, women, religious minorities, and other groups. Um, and so we're, we're particularly concerned that if platforms had to be, had to worry about liability for, for anything happening on, on their services, then it will make it extremely difficult to have open and frank conversations about race and gender issues. It will be difficult for uh, racial justice movements to mobilize online. What, what we've seen is, for example, social media was extremely important for the movement for Black Lives and the Me Too movement. And, and those types of modern civil rights movements have, have really uh, germinated on the internet. And it would not be possible for those movements to exist without Section 230. If you hear critics sort of discuss this, it's more to 
kind of framed as this sort of impenetrable shield where, you know, platforms can pretty much do whatever they want and they can't be sort of sued uh, uh, in terms of either civil or, or criminal liability. But I wonder if you can sort of talk through what are the standards where which with which they can actually be sort of held liable uh, for particular harms that, that arise from the platforms. There's essentially a two-part test. And when courts apply this test correctly, it gives platforms strong protections, but not limitless protections. And there have been a number of cases, especially more recently, where courts have said, you know what? You can't pass the test, so you're not getting immunity. And so what is that two-part test? The first is, is the, the plaintiff's claim seeking to treat the defendant as a publisher of third-party content, of content made by someone else? And that question is, is really key. The language of Section 230 never uses the word immunity. It doesn't say, like, you can't be immune. What it says is these online users and providers of online services shall not be treated as a publisher of third-party content. And under normal common law and, and other legal principles, publishers are often able to be held liable for the things that they publish. And so what Section 230 says is, if you're publishing something and you didn't write it, you can get immunity. But if a claim is based on something that's not integral to, pu where publishing is not integral to the claim, then Section 230 doesn't apply. So what do I mean? Let me give you some examples. In the context of civil rights, what we think about is mortgage approval algorithms, job applicant screening algorithms, tenant screening algorithms, facial recognition algorithms. All these types of systems might happen online they almost certainly are using third-party content in their algorithmic process, but they're not publishing. They're doing something else with third-party data online. And so Section 230 shouldn't cover that. To give a, an example from a recent decision, there was a case in the Fourth Circuit decided a few months ago, Henderson versus the Source for Public Data. And that was about the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And the Fair Credit Reporting Act, one of its requirements is that uh, credit reporting agencies have to provide certain disclosures to consumers about background check reports and things like that. And so someone sued this company saying like, hey, you, you're not complying with this. You're not giving me the disclosures that, that, that I am due. And the, the company invoked Section 230 because it was an online site and they were using online records. And the court said, no, giving a disclosure to this user isn't a component of your publishing activity. It's it's a compliance obligation like paying taxes. And so you don't get 230 immunity for that. Similarly, uh, the Ninth Circuit has held that vacation rental websites have to comply with local ordinances about getting licenses for vacation rentals and, and various disclosures and things like that. Even though the vacation rental websites, you know, something like Airbnb, it wasn't Airbnb in this case, it was a site called HomeAway. Um, you know, they're they're hosting listings of third-party content. Users put their houses up on these sites and they're essentially a broker. But the court said, Yeah, you're you're doing all this stuff related to publishing, but these licensing requirements, that's ancillary, and you have to comply with that. And section two thirty doesn't doesn't immunize you. So that's step one is the claim 
does it hinge on whether or not the provider is publishing third-party content? And so then there's step two, which is, is it really third-party content? And so what the second step is, it's usually called the material contribution test. And so the statute says you get immunity when you're publishing content provided by another person. And the word another in there is very important because the way the statutory language works, it says that if the defendant co-creates or co-develops the content at issue, then Section 230 doesn't apply. So how does this come into effect? The Sixth Circuit, in a case called Jones versus Dirty World Entertainment, uh, really summed it up as material contribution. This test means being responsible for what makes the displayed content allegedly unlawful. It comes back to responsibility. Is the claim trying to hold the platform liable because the content is illegal and the platform published the content? Or did the platform play a role in the creation of that content or some some sort of significant role in why what happens was illegal? So to give an example, two examples, there's a classic case from the Ninth Circuit called Roommates. It was a site for finding a roommate. The website induced users to express discriminatory preferences about who they wanted to live with, you know, things like race, gender, et cetera. And the Ninth Circuit said that was illegal because the site specifically had prompts and buttons for people to click. And and basically, like the users had to express these preferences. In contrast, there was another similar case against Craigslist where Again, Craigslist was sued for something related to housing discrimination, where people were saying like, hey, you're allowing these discriminatory housing ads to run on Craigslist. And Craigslist was held not to be liable. It was held to be immune under Section 230 because all it was doing was putting up a blank text box and users put discriminatory information into the text box, but Craigslist didn't play a role. And so what's really key here is thinking about what is the exact role that the platform is playing? Is it helping to create the content? Is it doing something that makes the content illegal or more illegal? Or is it just a conduit for someone else's illegal conduct? In the civil rights context, we care a lot about this because we are focused on things like discriminatory algorithms used for advertising. So there was a, a recent case where DOJ brought a lawsuit against uh, Meta, Facebook's owner, for discriminatory advertisements for housing ads. And basically, you know, we, we've probably all seen various reports about how Facebook's advertising system can deliver ads on the basis of race and sex and other protected characteristics. And the Department of Justice did an investigation and brought a lawsuit saying, yeah, and you are steering housing advertisements on the basis of race to black users, to white users, away from black users, away from white users. That's illegal under the Fair House. So how does this factor into the material contribution test in Section 230? Those housing ads themselves are probably not illegal. It's probably, you know, a random apartment building says like, here's our units, come check it out. There's probably nothing illegal about those ads. 
where the illegality enters is when Facebook's algorithm takes this benign content and delivers it in a discriminatory fashion and, and therefore transforms what was perfectly fine conduct into illegal conduct. And that is the material contribution that would defeat Section 230. So, in, you know, in the context of the Gonzalez case, I mean, there's quite a bit of sort of media coverage as this is sort of an issue of algorithms. And what you're sort of saying with respect to at least algorithms is that what matters with the algorithm is, you know, what is it actually doing? Is it something that's more directly related to the content? Then it's a much harder question to answer in terms of, of the protections for 230. But if it's with respect to sort of the outcomes and the algorithm itself in terms of what it's doing is clearly illegal uh, under whatever law, whether it's civil rights law or other laws, then Section 230 doesn't apply. That's right. Yeah, that's that's sort of that's that's sort of the position we we argued. It's also the position that the United States Solicitor General argued. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in this sense, I think we, we filed our brief in support of neither party. I think both sides here are not quite right. The plaintiffs want to say that you know recommendations aren't covered by Section two thirty, and so if you're recommending illegal conduct content. Then, then you can be held liable, perhaps, for that illegal content, maybe. That's probably a bridge too far. And the defendants are saying, and, and amici for defendants are saying, recommendations are just part of publishing. We should get immunity for all of it, which is definitely incorrect. What matters here is the platform, when it makes a recommendation, and to be clear, it doesn't matter if it's an algorithmic recommendation or a human recommendation. I want to come back to that in a minute because it's really important. The statute doesn't say anything about algorithms. When that platform's making a recommendation, the content it's recommending, it gets immunity for. If it's recommending illegal content, it can't be held liable for what's inside the box, so to speak. But the manner in which it makes the recommendation, it can be liable for that. Section 230 doesn't protect that. So if the manner of the recommendation is itself illegal, it can be held liable. So if you think about that as the wrapping paper on the outside of the box, if there's poison inside the box, the platform is immune. If the wrapping paper is poisonous, the platform's on the hook. That's one way to think about it. And But I want to come back for a minute on this notion of whether it matters if it's an algorithmic recommendation or not, because this is where this case can get really dangerous. The statute makes no distinction between algorithms and other technologies. It doesn't care. It's tech neutral, which is the right way to write a statute. So let's suppose the Supreme Court is looking at algorithmic recommendations and it says Section 230 immunizes recommendations. Well, there's no distinction between algorithmic recommendations and human recommendations. So that means human recommendations get immunity too. And Section 230 applies to both providers of services and users of those online services. So consider this hypothetical. Suppose a realtor sends an email to a client and she includes some links to houses and says, I think you would like these houses because you are black and black people should live in this neighborhood. That's a violation of the Fair Housing Act. It's very illegal. It's also a recommendation. 
and it's an online recommendation. She's using email. That's an online platform that would be covered by Section 230. She's a user of that online platform. She's sharing third-party content, those links, and she's making a recommendation to the recipient that I think you're, you, sh you should be interested in this content. If recommendations get Section 230 immunity, that type of discrimination gets immunized. And not just that type of discrimination, but really any kind of online communication that includes some third-party content and some sort of message that somehow implies that the recipient should be interested in it. Anything that could somehow vaguely be thought of as a recommendation will get immunity, which that, you know, anyone with half a brain could figure out how to get anything under that umbrella just by using a little bit of careful phrasing. And so now you, you have this situation where there are no laws on the internet. Right. So that, that is one way in which, you know, on one hand, the court could uphold the Ninth Circuit's decision, but do so in a manner that essentially expands Sections 230's protections rather than even just maintaining what is sort of the status quo sort of court's understanding of, of the scope of Section 230. That's right. Yeah. And that's something we want to be very, very, very careful about is we can't create a situation in which civil rights laws that have governed our commerce for 50 plus years and have been essential to integrating our society don't apply to the 21st century economy. That's a recipe for a recreation of segregation and redlining online. So let's sort of kind of move to kind of the, the other side of this sort of coin, so to speak, for the core in terms of, you know, let's say they look at the Gonzalez's lawyer's brief, maybe it's the Solicitor General's views, uh, maybe they look at uh, some of the conversation around distributor liability being sort of something that should exist within the context of Section 30. Do any of those sort of outcomes concern you uh, for the work that you do or, or concern you for the communities that you work on behalf of? So my concern would be if a very narrow scope of immunity was adopted such that lots of types of online activity fall out of scope of Section 230. Because again, the risk here is basically if platforms can be held liable for third-party content, and there's different routes that could happen. But if they can be held liable for content that they did not co-create and that they did not play some central role in furthering, you know, if, if they can be held liable, you know, in this, in a vicarious way without some sort of specific action, then that can have a, a very significant chilling effect on how the, how these online platforms operate. Because as I was saying before, what we, what we have seen is content moderation basically does not work at scale. And the people that always get silenced, when the dial gets turned up on the AI content moderator, it's always people of color, LGBTQ people, religious minorities, others who have traditionally and historically been subjected to censorship. 
and these online platforms that allow these groups to circumvent traditional gatekeepers in major media, whether it be political gatekeepers, economic gatekeepers, social, cultural gatekeepers. Online, there is this great opportunity for all types of different groups and communities to find and, and connect with each other. That's especially valuable for individuals that might live in a small community somewhere where there aren't lots of other people like them. You know, if, if you are a family of color in a small town where there's not a lot of other people of color, the ability to go online and connect with others like yourself who might have similar experiences to you is extremely important. And especially that's true for LGBTQ people. So there's a very, very serious risk of silencing people who need these platforms if Section 230 does not offer uh, adequate protection. A very sort of tough course for the Supreme Court to navigate in this particular case. It is, but the fact is, is they already have the map. They have the chart. They don't need to necessarily reinvent the wheel here. The consensus test and framework at the lower courts has largely gotten it right. And that's why the things that we really tried to emphasize in our brief and want the court to think about is there's kind of a, there, there's no circuit split on section 230. The courts are, uh, the lower courts are largely in agreement. And the thing we have to keep in mind is that section 230 has never been to the Supreme Court. So there's 25 years of cases at the lower courts that have hashed out lots of different difficult issues, but none of that's binding on the Supreme Court. It can start from scratch and say, everything we know about Section 230 is wrong. We're redoing it this way. So one of the things we really wanted to emphasize to the court was like, there's this balance that's been established and not every decision is correct, but the fundamentals are strong. But that is, I think, a very big area of uncertainty then given the Supreme Court's discretion, so to speak, to come up with its own interpretation uh, and ignore this sort of other sort of sense of cases. And and so that could be a real surprise late this year when the, the decision comes out. It could. I mean, to my, my prediction is I don't think the Supreme Court's going to say anything about Section 230 in this case. It's got a companion case, Tamna versus Twitter, that arises out of the same facts and has the same legal claims, but doesn't have a Section 230 issue. And the court could very well decide, you know, the Section 230 stuff is too complicated and we don't want to mess with this. And they can decide TAMNA in a particular way that would also apply to this case and moot this case without having to decide the Section 230 issues. I think that's probably the most likely outcome. I bet that's what I feel is likely to happen. David Brody of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. Thank you again so much for your, your time and expertise on the case. Appreciate Thanks it. for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to Ben Lennett, Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening.
Aussie Press.